Welcome to Doctorate, the podcast of PhD candidates in the humanities and the social sciences at the University of Vienna. This is the place for communication and discussion about issues surrounding us in the world of science. We address the what's, why's and how's of our work and invite researchers from different disciplines to explore topics and ideas they and we deeply care about. There's an ancient Chinese curse saying, may you live in interesting times. We truly live in those, don't we? It can be said that the European Union is in a constant crisis since the global economic crisis and the European sovereign debt crisis of 2008 and 2009. With Russia's military invasion of Ukraine in 2022, the European Union faces yet again numerous new challenges, including surging energy prices and rising inflation. Amidst those challenges, Germany, as economic powerhouse, plays a vital role in the European Union. It can be said that Germany's policies in general also shaped the European Union since the conception of the Maastricht Agreement, the EU's foundation treaty in 1992. This is why I thought this episode should focus on Germany's role in the European Union and on Germany's economic policies. To talk about those topics, we invited a special guest for this episode, Thomas Kögler. Thomas has been studying Germany and the philosophy behind Germany's economic policy for several years now. His economic background lies in business economics and history. He had studied at the Vienna University of Economics and Business and at the Diplomatic Academy of Vienna, as well as at the George Washington University and at Stanford in the United States. Since 2021, he is a PhD candidate at the University of Vienna. In addition to his studies, Thomas works as bank supervisor and analyst at the Austrian National Bank since 2019. Thomas and I actually go way back. We studied together at the Diplomatic Academy, from which we both graduated in 2019. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this really interesting but complex topic. Hi Bernd, thanks for having me. So Thomas, could you give us, our listeners, an introduction to your PhD thesis? Well, first of all, I want to stress that everything I say are my private thoughts and are in no way associated to the National Bank. What do I do in my PhD? Well, I study the German economic policy and how it was perceived within Germany in the immediate post-war period. So I used the coverage in German quality media between 1945 and 1969 and utilized big data and machine learning techniques like sentiment analysis to analyze changes in the perception and sentiment and detect the crucial events and the post-war period concerning economic policy. Okay, I see. So why is the development of Germany's economic policies in the post-war period relevant nowadays? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting because the German economic policy at the time was markedly different from the rest of the so-called free world. Other countries followed Keynesian or to some degree socialist economic policies, whereas Germany followed their own variant of neoliberalism called ordoliberalism. So we have to ask ourselves how and why did those policies succeed in this hostile environment? Second, those ordoliberal policies planted the seeds of many sentiments and economic principles that are still very prevalent in Germany today. Mm -hmm. You mentioned ordoliberal policies. Could you define ordoliberalism for our listeners? Well, to sum it up very shortly, autoliberalism developed in the 1930s as a response to the economic and political crises in Germany. It is similar to neoliberalism in its critique of state intervention and its distrust toward masses and democracy, 
but is different in that it openly criticized classical liberalism and the policies of laissez-faire. It also proposed different solutions towards solving those crises. All the liberals proposed a so-called economic constitution, which set a framework for the market economy guaranteed by the state with very little intervention, and which was also removed from the influence of party politics and democracy. Okay, so why did this policy become so popular following the Second World War? Well, it was implemented through a set of policies commonly referred to as the social market economy, which is mainly associated with the person of Ludwig Erhard. One important point uh, at the beginning. In the understanding of Erhard himself, saying social market economy was actually kind of a marketing trick. It appealed to centrist and leftist voters as well because of the adjective social. Mm -hmm. But in his mind, it just stated an inherent quality. For him, a market economy created the most fair, which means the most social distribution. So for him, saying social market economy was like saying sweet chocolate or spicy chilies. Mm -hmm. Talking a bit about Erhard himself. um, During the Nazi era, he was a bit of an obscure researcher. And immediately after the breakdown of the Nazi regime, he introduced himself to the American uh, occupation forces in his hometown Mm -hmm. of Fürth in Bavaria. And the Americans took an immediate liking of him um, because of his pre-market views and also for not having been a member of the Nazi party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With American support, he almost immediately became Minister of Economics in Bavaria in 1945 but was, quite predictably, not very successful in this role. And I think no one would have been. Mm -hmm. Before Erhard got the role, like 10 people already declined it. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody saw that you can't really um, succeed in those difficult times as Minister um, of Economics. Still, Erhard's role was looked into by Germany's first parliamentary investigation committee, the first U-Ausschuss in uh, post-war Germany, Mm-hmm. And they concluded that basically Erhard is unfit for any role in public administration. However, Erhard uh, still got another major role in an expert committee on money and credit. Moreover, and this is uh, one of the flukes in history, in early 1948, the director of economics in the buy zone, which was the combined occupation zones of the US and uh, Great Britain, Johannes Semler, made a very unfortunate uh, comment in front of party members. He said that basically all American food imports are chicken feed. Chicken feed. Yeah, Mm. and this got out to the Americans and they had no other choice uh, than to sack him. So there had to be a new director of economics and after some political horse trading between the liberal FDP and the conservative uh, CDU, as well as a gigantic blunder by the Social Democrats who did not know the voting procedure very well, Erhard was chosen as his successor and then oversaw the currency reform in 1948. Interesting. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about about this currency reform? Yeah, I think this reform is is actually key. Uh, Erhard was not really involved in its conception. It mainly came uh, from the Americans. Mm -hmm. However, he recognized the potential of, of this reform Uh, Overall, he was a great marketing man. So in the build-up to the reform that he knew was coming, 
he supported the hoarding of goods by companies and, and retailers so that on the day of the actual reform, the previously empty shelves were suddenly full with goods. Mm -hmm. And so he sent out this PR campaign, all right, the currency reform, and I, Ludwig Erhard, did all this. Now, the other major player at the time was obviously Konrad Adenauer, course, Konrad Adenauer yeah. uh, the longtime chancellor of uh, Germany, who was at the time the leader of the uh, CDU, of the Conservative Party. He didn't really like the party's program at the time, the so-called Ahlen program, for its uh, socialist tendencies, and he wanted to distance himself from the SPD. And for that, he recognized the potential of Erhard and the two joint forces. And so the party's next program, the Düsseldorf program of 1949, was already full with um, ideas of the social market economy, with auto liberal ideas, mm -hmm. and can be seen as the founding document of the social market economy. In it, you find principles like competition, antitrust, stable currency, market prices, private property, and most importantly, saving. Uh, indeed, it demands, and this is a quote from the actual document, the utmost frugality of public administration, basically lying the foundation of the German austerity policies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Later on, I mean, Erhard was Minister of Economics for a very long time. He also associated himself with the economic miracle, the Wirtschaftswunder, which, according to his PR campaign, seemed to be caused by the currency reform and to confirm the success of his policies and thus also of order liberal frugality. Well, this is quite interesting. So you, you basically say that the popularity of the social market economy that promoted Germany's austerity was actually grounded on, on deception then. I would not disagree with this statement, mm -hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, then let, let us fast forward a bit to the, to the late 80s, uh, to the dissolution of the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, and to Germany's reunification. Despite the initial success of Germany's reunification, there were of course negative socioeconomic effects of the GDR's dissolution, especially in Eastern Germany. Um, it is clear that there persists an East-West economic division in Germany, a division that is actually visible until this day. So how do you explain this division? Well, I think a lot of money was spent overall on reunification, but a lot of damage was done in the initial stages. At this time, West Germany thought that it could get reunification on the cheap. Basically, they were blinded by Erhard's uh, successful PR campaign. They thought that the economic miracle that had happened in West Germany in the 1950s was based on the currency reform, based on the introduction of the stable mark. Yeah, yeah. And so they thought they could duplicate this in the GDR. So they thought, okay, we're introducing the mark and we're going to have huge growth. We're going to have an economic miracle in East Germany. However, it turned out it didn't. The change from the plant economy to a market economy basically overnight was way too radical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Within a month, output had fallen by half. Almost all enterprises faced default. And the fund that West Germany had founded for East German uh, corporations for loans to them, which should have lasted until the end of the year, so for six months, did not even last the first month. Not and even the first month. Not even the first month. And after four months, despite lots and lots of East Germans leaving the country and moving to West Germany, 
500,000 people in East Germany were unemployed and 1.7 million were underemployed. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I looked at Germany's economic growth data, you know, in the, the 1990s and it is true that the Western Germany economy had to actually carry Eastern Germany. And since only two years after German unification, industrial production in the East plummeted by a flabbergasting 73% from the levels of 1989, right? Yeah, that's true. And I think the whole tragedy of this economic reunification can be seen with the Treuhand, mm -hmm. which was an institution that was set up to privatize the national wealth, the Volksvermögen uh, of the GDR. And it was actually set up to pay out the profits of those privatizations as dividends to the people of the, of the GDR. Now, as I have said, with the monetary unification, East German companies were basically immediately thrust into the market economy, defaulting many of them. So they would have needed time to adjust to a market economy in a protected environment. But that would have been contrary to order liberal policies. The people running the Treuhand wanted to get rid of the assets quickly. They saw state ownership as an evil and they let potential buyers pick and choose what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the Treuhand did not only not make any profits, but had lost more than 260 billion <laughs> marks. Jesus. What it managed, however, was a radical redistribution. Only 5% of the former national assets were still in East German hands, whereas 85% were snatched up by West German companies and investors, and 10% were internationally owned. What was left to the East Germans, you might ask? Well, that companies, trauma, and unemployment, which is still higher in the East than in the West today. Yeah, well, but if you look at those um, difficulties, you know, regarding reunification, the state of the East German uh, industry, how was it actually possible for Germany to ascend as a major economic powerhouse in the EU area following the dissolution of the German Democratic Republic? Well, I think this is pretty clear cut. Germany was already the dominant economic force uh, within Europe before reunification. I mean, already at the time, the French called the mark the German nuclear bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, now with reunification, it also became the most populous country in the EU. So it even had a bigger labor force. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think this is not surprising at all. Okay, yeah, well, looking at Germany's unification and at Maastricht, France wanted to actually create the European Monetary Union in order to contain Germany's supreme influence in the EU area, right? Yeah, I mean, it was already the French plan throughout the 1980s to destroy the, as I've already said, German nuclear bomb, with meaning the, the German mark. However, Germany and especially the order liberal Bundesbank, they did not want a common currency. And their argument against it was mainly the so-called coronation theory, which means that all other countries joining the monetary union first have to converge to German macroeconomic standards and only after at the same level as Germany a monetary union is feasible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, with that, they were basically delaying the monetary union into the very, very distant future. However, after the inner German monetary union, this argument completely fell apart. The GDR was nowhere near West German standards and nowhere near the macroeconomic standards of any other country that would have joined the Euro at the time. So with this inner German monetary union, France immediately started pushing for the Euro again, and it succeeded in doing so. 
However, it did not contain Germany's huge influence on the European economy. Yeah, this is really interesting because this plan this by France, as you said, clearly failed if we observe Germany's um, uh, current position in the European Union. Um, how do you assess Germany's general role in the creation of the Maastricht Agreement and, and the European Monetary Union? Well, like I said, the Bundesbank had lost its most powerful argument, but it realized that it had lost it and that it could not stop the euro. However, realizing that, it negotiated very toughly. And the French basically agreed to everything as long as they got a fixed date for the introduction of the euro. So Germany and the Bundesbank in the end got most or almost all of their points into the Maastricht Treaty, like the convergence criteria and the institutional setup of the ECB, which is, in terms of inflation control, probably even more radical than the German Bundesbank. So in the end, Germany managed to dictate the terms of the euro. And as I said in my master thesis, thereby introduced auto-liberal principles, and especially those of austerity and hardcore inflation control throughout the whole Eurozone. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move forward again um, and talk about Germany's current role in the European Union. Uh, I think we should address the Greek sovereign debt crisis of 2008 here, um, since the aftermath of this crisis actually posed a serious threat to the European Union. Um, itself. Um, as you know, Greece faced a series of sudden reforms and austerity measures due to this crisis that led to impoverishment and uh, the general loss of income for the Greek population. The crisis also caused a, um, a brain drain in Greece, so hundreds of thousands of well-educated Greeks uh, had to leave the country. Um, so looking at those German austerity sentiments, what exact role did Germany play in the Greek sovereign debt crisis? Well, I think future historians will not look back kindly on Germany's role in this crisis. And at the beginning, I want to focus here on uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, the German Minister of Finance at the time. And uh, his personal traits proved to be disastrous for Greece and almost for all of Europe, since he combined Protestant ethics with auto-liberal economics. Now, why is that bad? Well, if you combine policies of austerity, the conviction that saving is good is probably the best thing you can do, which was personified by the picture of the Swabian housewife. And you combine all of that with an almost religious belief that that is sinful, you get a toxic cocktail. And applied to the case of Greece, it meant that the Greeks were to blame for spending their money for spending other people's money. And consequently, they had to atone in the mind of Schäuble for their sins. And this radical way of thinking caused the German hesitation over bailing out Greece, which subsequently led financial markets to question the ability of Italy, Spain, and other Euro countries to pay back the debt and ultimately almost broke up the euro. Okay, yeah, well, so the, the role of Protestant ethics and the figure of the Swabian housewife you mentioned before is really interesting. How is this compatible with values of a Christian socialist party then? Well, uh, it's a big conundrum. Um, if we look at the Lord's Prayer, which we all know as like the most basic prayer of Christianity, it explicitly says, and forgive us for our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And that's just one 
um, passage in the Bible that talks about forgiving that. And it means that a good Christian helps those in that, helps those in problems. So it is a big conundrum how this is compatible. And in addition, policies of austerity have also completely destroyed the social fabric of Greece. Even today, the GDP is only at 57% of the pre-crisis level of the 2008 levels. Unemployment is still at a massive 14.7%. Overall, millions of livelihoods were destroyed. And the outlook is kind of bleak since, as you said, Greece is experiencing a massive brain drain. In addition, Germany, in its pursuit of austerity and its goal of punishing the Greeks for their sins, it ignored all common sense regarding geopolitics. To give just one example, uh, Schäuble and, and the German government ordered Greece to privatize all of its prime assets, including the port of Piraeus, one of Europe's most important harbors. And so the port of Piraeus was sold to the highest bidder, which turned out to be a Chinese company yes, and is, yeah. is now in Chinese hands. Yes, yes. I mean, I actually conducted a lot of research about China's acquisition of the port of Piraeus. Uh, Greece leased several docks of the port to the Chinese shipping company Costco in 2009 because of the crisis. And in 2016, Costco eventually bought 51% of the port, so the majority. Um, and now China utilizes the port of Piraeus as one of several gateways for its trade network, the so-called One Road, One Belt initiative. So from Greece via the Western Balkans into the European Union. So yeah, the, the geopolitical repercussions of the sovereign debt crisis and Germany's role, it's really interesting. Yeah, it, it, it basically makes you scratch your head. <laughs> so looking at, at Germany's foreign policy, we also have to talk about uh, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, of course, and, and really interesting stateswoman who ruled over the country for well, 16 years, for a very long time. She tried to maintain Germany's close relations with Russia and was actually an important promoter for the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to facilitate the import of cheap Russian energy to Germany. And this topic is, of course, particularly important in view of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Well, um, how do you assess Germany's reliance on cheap Russian energy. Do you agree with other analysts stating, you know, that the import of cheap energy was the basis of German economic growth in general? Well, yes, to a certain degree. Um, cheap energy was definitely one pillar, but cheap labor within Germany was the second. Because you cannot have export surpluses of this scale for that long without exploiting your national resources in that case, the labor force. And the policies of former SPD Chancellor uh, Schröder, especially the Hartz IV reforms that drastically cut benefits for the unemployed, they played a huge role here. And it is with good cause that Schröder prided himself at the World Economic Forum in uh, Davos in 2005 that he had created the best low-wage sector in Europe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we, we established by now that Germany is really the EU's economic powerhouse, you know, with its policies, etc. But I'm wondering, you know, Germany has a strong economy, has strong exports, you know, so it's dominant. Nevertheless, according to the International Monetary Fund, wealth inequality itself in Germany is still along the uh, highest in Europe uh, until this day. So how, how do you explain that? Well, I think it's, it's no surprise at all. Um, like I said, one of the main pillars of Germany's economic power and of its massive export surpluses is the cheap domestic labor, which allows German producers to remain competitive on international markets. The profits then 
flow back to the big corporations who get even bigger and even richer. And the results of this operation are, as I said, not surprising and they can be clearly seen in the IMF study that uh, you just quoted. Disposable household income has declined since the 1990s. Median household wealth is among the lowest in the euro area and wealth inequality is among the highest in Europe. So basically the strong export focus is a gigantic operation to redistribute national wealth from the labor force who work for very low wages to other countries who can get German products on the cheap, as well as to the corporations and their shareholders who reap the profits. I think we should uh, look forward a bit into the into the future. Um, how do you view Germany's actual prospects um, in light of the country's austerity policies, stagnating wages you just mentioned? Well, it's interesting. So one of Germany's pillars of growth that we just mentioned, the cheap energy imports, they seem to be crumbling. And also German infrastructure has seen better days. Uh, you just have to try and take the train in Germany or drive on a highway like I did a few weeks ago from Salzburg to, to Munich. And you can experience the deterioration of, of German infrastructure. So without massive investments, Germany will, in my view, not be able to stay the economic power that it is. And if that element of pride within the German people of having this economic power, believing in the economic miracle... Of being the economic powerhouse in the yes, European Union. Yes, being the yeah. export world champion. If that goes away, people will start to look abroad and they will start to compare their wages, their wealth. And they will see that their income, their wealth, their savings is pretty low compared to that of, of other countries. And what I see as the big problem here is in that case, we could experience in West Germany what we've already seen in the East, where the people compared their incomes, not with that of other former Comic-Con countries, but with that of West Germany. And they got frustrated and they turned to EU skeptical and sometimes even openly anti-democratic political forces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's also a danger of, 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 of a brain drain here, right? of a brain drain, but also, and I think even more importantly, of political radicalization. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about the prospects of the European Union itself? I mean, in view of Brexit, rising EU skepticism, uh, w what can be done to ensure EU consolidation or, or, or what, what could Germany do as, as this uh, vital country in the European Union? Well, basically, and I say this with a lot of disappointment, uh, the EU in its current state and current institutional setup is, when it comes to the big crises of our day, mostly dysfunctional. A single country can block almost everything that counts with its veto power, which also means that institutional reform for the EU as a whole is, in my opinion, not feasible. However, I think that we have to start thinking about a concept that was already successful in the past kind of a Europe of different speeds, which means further integration of those countries that are willing to do so. Okay, so could you define this concept, the Europe of, of different speeds in detail? Well, I mean, basically it means that a few member states of the EU could come together and deepen their cooperation in one or several areas like foreign policy, infrastructure, defense policy, or even fiscal policy. So by doing that, they create a new institutional setup 
within the EU for this operation, like it was already done quite successfully in the past with the Euro or with the Schengen area. And these new institutions would have to be successful. These new institutions would have to fulfill two criteria. First, within these institutions, the veto power has to be abolished. And second, you have to set them up in a way that they're democratically legitimated. And this is, I think, especially important with regards to fiscal policy. And yeah, I think Germany could be a leader here. And the effect of the EU could be that if these institutions prove to be successful, which I think they would be, then other member states would want to join in. But when they do so, they would have to accept it at existing conditions. So they would have to accept the institutional setup without veto power. Oh, so yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. You, your view that Germany could assume a leading position here is interesting. However, it will be difficult to promote those ideas in the European Union. Such reforms, you know, giving out veto powers, uh, Europe of two different speeds, you know, they, they could also cause an increase in EU skepticism, especially in countries such as Hungary or Poland, no? Well, I don't think so, because it's optional. No one is forced here to participate. And like I said, these new institutions also have to be democratically legitimated to get acceptance in the countries that start them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we, we can agree that the EU itself needs to be reformed, right? Um, without reforms, the EU will be eventually left behind other global external actors, especially China and the United States. Um, talking about EU skepticism, so what role can Germany as influential economic powerhouse assume to promote European unity? Well, like I said, I mean, on the one hand, it can take a leadership role in promoting this idea of a Europe of different speeds, of promoting the deepening of cooperation in certain areas with those countries willing to do so. On the other hand, Germany could take a positive role in the green transformation of Europe to combat climate change, which is one of the, if not the most important issue um, of our time. However, this would mean a change in German mindset, basically from black zero of having no deficits to green zero, meaning net zero carbon emissions. Um, this whole operation would require massive investments, uh, especially in infrastructure. And obviously, based on what we have talked about, one has to be skeptical about how Germany can overcome this fixation it has on austerity, on saving, under under black uh, zero but i think it could also have really really big positive effects on germany itself it would create jobs it would provide german companies with huge projects in this insecure economic times and it would also revitalize the crumbling infrastructure that germany has at home so I think that there is at least some reason for hope here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and when we talk about Germany's role in the European Union, I think you will agree with me when I say that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I also believe that Germany can contribute a lot to consolidate the European Union, um, despite those challenging times we live in right now. Um, on this positive note, I think we can end our discussion. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today and, and to have this discussion with me about these really complex topics. Well, it's a pleasure, Bernd. Anytime. Your view about Germany's economic policy and, and the country's role in the European Union were really interesting. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, this was episode 10 of Doctorate, about Germany, austerity and the future of Europe. Thanks again to our guest, Thomas Kögler. 
This episode was produced by Angelina Iles, Martin Pocconi, IUKC, and by myself. Editing and technical work by Martin Pocconi. I'm your host, Jan Christoph Ström. Dr. It will be back with a new episode in May, so stay tuned.